Thanks for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. I'm James, and today I'm joined by our special guests, Lee and Susan, the partner duo behind Gaddis Gaming. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank well, you for having us. Well, it's I'm glad to have you on because I've had game designers and collectors, but you're the actual, like, the rare breed out there, actual manufacturers. You have facilities out in uh, Detroit, and you actually manufacture m miniatures in the United States, which uh, for most buyers, when you go looking around for where miniatures are made, it's uh, China, it's somewhere in Europe, um, and you guys, <laughs> and a handful yeah. of other uh, U.S. makers. Um, but before we get into your manufacturing, I, I always like to ask people, um, how did you get started in miniature wargaming? What was the origin story of what pulled you into the hobby? Well, Lee pulled me in because he's been since <laughs> he was a kid. Yeah, well, I've been playing longer than her, but the impetus for the company was Susan designed the, the Gaddis Gaming Table Topper, which, uh, which is a patent product that we have that takes any surface and converts it into a 4x4 or 4x6 gaming table. And that was the first product that we had in our product line. Okay. So, and, yeah, and that was that's that's one of your big products on your website. Do you manufacture that in-house or we manufacture that in-house, yep. Oh wow. And that was a and that was a reaction to the forty thousand dollar uh Sultan table that came out by Geek Sheet. You remember Geek Sheet? Table? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I laughed when I saw that. It's like I, I can go to some Amish guy and he'll make that for me for a lot less. <laughs> Yeah, but that's who they had. They had a guy in Oregon that was making it, you know, but and they they had a waiting list of a year, you know, and then they started to try to get into miniature gaming and that broke the company. You know, they were making money on tables and lost money on on making games. So so you know how you make a a, a, a small fortune in gaming? You start, start with, with a large one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, start with a big one. And they, Which and I guess you started with a large one and you've decided to see how small you can make it. Right, so you have lots probably you can make it right. So we got that product designed, and she had it patented. And then um, we wanted to get into wargaming, and then going to conventions. Susan noticed that there, like, there wasn't an entree for women, and uh, and and people of color. So, so we decided to focus on that um, with our miniatures. Yeah. So our miniature line, our first game that we created was Shattered Crown which um, celebrated the 100th anniversary of World War I. And, uh, and we dedicated that to the Harlem Hellfighters who in 100 years had never had a game dedicated to them, you know, out of all the war games that had been made in that time. And so that was our first like focus. And then um, I was uh, watching, I had came home for Thanksgiving and we were watching Battle of the Bulge. And, uh, and, and my grandfather said, oh, those aren't the right tanks. And I said, well, how do you know? And my uncle said, because he was there. And then, <laughs> then I learned that my grandfather was in the 761st Tank Battalion during World War II. And so we decided to dedicate our second game, Empire's Fall, to the 761st Tank Battalion in, in World War II because a lot of people of color and women who, were, who participated in those aren't really, aren't really um, uh, they're just written out of history. Yeah, they're, they're written out of the historical, historical record. And I thought by putting them in the game, that way we would pique people's curiosity about them and they could find out about them. And, and it worked because a lot of people are like, oh, I never heard of the 761st Tank Battalion. I'm like, yeah, they were the ones that came in and, and relieved uh, the 101st Airborne when they were surrounded in, in Bastogne. 
you know, and and they were Patton's spearhead. That was that was his secret weapon, the Red Ball Express, uh, delivering fuel and ammo, and the uh, 761st Tank Battalion, which were like the the tip of the spear, you know, when it came to to armored combat in uh, uh, in, in Europe. So so for us, you know, it allows us to do a personal journey for us by um by being able to focus on women and people of color in war gaming and also give younger people on ramp into gaming because i know a lot of people saying oh is war gaming dead because it's graying and getting older but if you look at our website it's just the opposite for us kids and young people and and girls and you know they just you know flock around our games you know so it's not an interest in war gaming i think it's 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 the war gaming culture that may turn a lot of them off you know you have to be you have to have a welcoming table can i put it that way yeah well i can understand because i've seen and i I travel around a lot around the country and i see people come in and you do that look left look right and then turn around and walk back out so it's like how do you like keep them in longer i've and i've been to um i've taken my daughter to nova open and um okay to the boardroom no interest (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she, she loves that board game room i have to dine i put her in there like nine in the morning i pull her out 11 at night and it's just right. straight yeah. in there but uh you because i think her and my wife whenever i try to get him into it it's like well i'm not interested in any of the models because the models lead it's not the rule sets like the magic behind the mechanisms of the games don't you know pull people in it's what they see on the table right. if you don't see anything that appeals to you on the table you can just keep on walking uh, yeah, and Susan will sell you a video game. Yeah, Susan has been a connoisseur of laying out a really nice table. So all of our terrain that you see laid out of the table, she usually sets that up because she comes from the fashion industry. So she has a, a really good eye for balance and how stuff goes. And she was responsible for, for making a lot of our terrain. Well, let me ask you, how do you... So you have uh, the terrain. You start off with the, um, the table topper and eventually you started moving into miniatures. And I, I will have to say... The time I hear about your company the most is your fins. Because when people say we need finished soldiers for World War II, it's like Gaddis Gaming is the place that gives like the most accurate finished soldiers. But how did you go from like, okay, I'm doing table toppers, I'm doing terrain into like, you know what, I want to do miniatures too. Well, because there, there was a big gap in the market. And again, I wanted everybody to be represented, right? So, so when we created our miniatures line, we just had to add in the Harlem Hellfighters, right? When you make regular World War One, you know, Germans and British and, you know, the Iscarius, you know, fighting in Africa and all the colonial troops, you just add in the Harlem Hellfighters, right, into that line. When you do World War Two, you know, you have all the six belligerents and the minor nations also, Finns being one of those. You know, we have Australians, we have Finns, we have uh, French, French Alpine, you know, Italian Alpine, uh, Italian in desert dress, Italian in, in, in European dress, you know, so we, we, we made the line as expensive as possible, but then we also included, you know, Punjabis, Sikhs, you know, for the whole, to, sh- to show the whole British Commonwealth, Gurkhas, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't just British from, you know, uh, England. We wanted to show the whole empire at that time. And everybody, you know, that, that was fighting. And so when we included American troops, we included African-American troops because they were also there fighting, you know. And- well, 
Is, doesn't that so, run contrary to like how most manufacturers think about their product lines? Because which is normally it's just yeah. yeah. So did you target that as like because the the fallback is like okay the major power nations and just convert your way um, to the minor well, nations if you want to do that. Yeah, it, it's British, Germans, Russians, right? That's what everybody focuses on because because our gaming because our don't you feel this way that our that our our gaming community is very Eurocentric, right? You know, it's like Detroit being the auto capital of the world, right? A lot of cars come out of Detroit. A lot of war games come out of Nottingham. Mantic, yes. Warlord, GW, uh, all the other companies, they all come out of Nottingham. So Nottingham is the Detroit of gaming. So they have a very specific point of view about gaming that's Eurocentric because that's where they're all from. Yeah. You know, they all get together with each other. They talk to each other, you know, and, and it's not a lot of outside influence. It's a very, um, uh, what is it? can I say homogenous? I don't want to say inbred because that's a negative connotation, <laughs> but, it's, but, it, but it's a very um, insular, enclosed, a closed loop. Closed yeah, loop it's a closed energy. loop, right? Yeah, it's a closed loop. Whereas here with us, by us having people of color and women in our business, we can look at it from a totally different perspective and bring that unique point of view to it. And again, put the detail into all of it, not only our Finns, but our Brits, our Americans, our Soviets. I mean, we have probably the most extensive Soviet line of, of anybody out there. You know, late war, early war, uh, summer, winter, you know, on and on and on, you know. So, uh, so I think that our attention to detail to each and every one of those uh, nations, I think, allows people to enjoy our miniatures uh, um, no matter which army they choose to go with. Well, let, let me ask you. So when you did World War One and World War Two, you also take a... Um kind of a high sci-fi bent to some of the games when I was going through your product catalog. So I'm, I'm one of the backers of uh, empire fall. Right. And um, I didn't pick up shattered crown. Uh, oh, you still I'll, can. Well, yeah. Well, I think when I was looking at the Kickstarter backing level, there's one where I could buy both, but the way you yeah. structured the options is I wanted the mechs. And I actually wrote you and asked if you had any like pictures of like, the uh, mechanized yeah which is yeah and they'll and they'll and, and all we had was the renderings we didn't have yeah. the actual physical models yet yeah yeah so Kickstarter was for us to be able to make those yeah so but i think in your option for both empire falls and shattered crowns you didn't mention yeah. that you had the mechs in that combined option and since i wanted right. those i just went for the empire falls with mechs gotcha. that, um so it's like if you had a shattered empire and mechs i would have probably gone up to that <laughs> yeah yeah kickstarter doesn't allow you to do a lot of things like that like you have to create tiers for every new listing right so i would have had to create another tier of Sh shattered crown empire falls with mechs that would have been another option right oh, and so, okay. I was trying to, so i was trying to streamline it to just like you know and then when you people did their their um did their pledge managers, they could add it on whatever they wanted after that. But I wanted to make sure that we were able to get it because remember, I did this right as the, um, as the lockdown started and I didn't want to promise something that I couldn't deliver. You okay. know, because we had, cause our printer, the guy that printed our books went out of business during COVID and I had to find a second printer, which is delaying the delivery of, of the product. You know, I got all of our tokens, our dice, our miniatures are all ready to go, but it's just getting the books printed. It's delayed on shipping it right now. Okay. Uh, well, where I was going is you take kind of a high, uh, a high technical fantasy to it. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, similar right, to like no, Contract it's a, it's 47. Yeah, yeah, this is complete yeah. werewolf. Because Susan yeah. was like, can we stop like, you know, doing history stuff? And can we just... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you know, you can... Rubicon doesn't make a uh, tank ball. So you no, always have they that. They sure don't. They don't make galvanic uh, rifles. They don't make Tesla coils. They don't make death rays. We make all of that. So it's it's a way for you to extend your gaming time, right? Because if you play historicals, there's only so many, you know, uh, D-Day Normandy landings you can play before you become bored. But you add a giant mech or some battle suits on the field. Now, now we can talk right now you can get crazy with it you know and we wanted and we wanted people to have that option that they didn't have to be all you know buttoned up and know how many buttons were on the uniform we wanted people to to be free to play a game and have fun with it and a way to do that the way to take it out to play with historical managers outside the historical space uh susan wanted to do make it a little more fun i mean i did like the uh Mar, the uh, in the, your World War One, you depicted some of the um, tripod walkers. I like to look yeah. at some of those. Yeah. So yeah. So it it, it was uh it was you know because we had came from a lot of steampunk gaming, which is like 1865, 1880. So we said, well, if War of the Worlds was set in 1899, and then you know 14 years later World War One happened, people would have just reverse engineered that technology, right? Yeah. And then, and so we just clamped it onto the weapons that they had, you know. But that's why I was looking at some of your uh, your latest sketches for um, some of the mechanized troops. There is mm-hmm. normally when you look at something like Conflict Forty Seven, you get the feel of more of the um, 50s, 60s um, robot, like Lost in Space type robot. Yeah. Where yeah. when I was looking at what you were designing, it looked more back to like a. The 30s and the 20s idea of what space would look like. So, right, is steampunk because you can see that more Rocket Man vibe of you know a guy with goggle, yeah. goggles. Yeah, because when we thought about when we talked about it, we were like, well, they will be working on it during this time period, and then it would appear a couple of years later. Because I was looking at the lag time because uh, the Tiger tank was started to build in 1940 or 39, and it hit the field until 1941. You know what I'm saying? So if you look at those three or four years of time from the time it hits the drawing board to the time it actually gets into the field, there's a lag. So if I figured if they started designing it in the 1930s, you know, uh, by the time it hit the battlefield, that's the look it would have. Because I think the B-17, which, you know, went all the way up until 1945, they they designed that in the in the mid-30s. You know, they started designing it and then it got into production in the 1940s. So, so that's why a lot of stuff has that 1930s feel to it. Cause I figured that's the time they would be designing it. And then it would hit the field in the 1940s. Well, that, and that's more appropriate because every weapon system out there probably has like a 20, 20 year maturation cycle before yeah. it actually gets fielded. So it's like, yeah, you know, you got to imagine the stuff today was made by a guy in 2000. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even look at the A-10 Warthog that was started in what the seventies. <laughs> and it's still on the field today, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the F-16, that's still there. I remember when that was brand new when I was a kid, <laughs> when they just released that plane. And now they're like, oh, we got to retire it. It's old. I'm like, the F-16 is old? <laughs> <laughs> you kind of get locked in your mind right there. But I, yeah. I do like I do like some of the ideas, especially pushing World War II past 45. 
Because mm -hmm. uh, personally, that means the triple nickels would have been ready. And so that was the uh, 555th uh, yes. parachute, parachute infantry battalion. Yeah, because yeah. they, I, I was reading the uh, PDFs you sent, and you mentioned them in there as the smoke jumpers because they were sent right. on Operation Firefly because they um, didn't have all their companies um, fully staffed out. But if you push the war to 47, that means you can have uh, 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 yeah, two, more, two more brigades. Yeah, they needed they needed three parachute brigades, and they were only one parachute brigade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they weren't able to join up with the 82nd or the 101st. But Correct. now, does that mean you're going to have actual like triple nickels models available? Yeah, we're working on those right now. Yeah, okay, like I said, the Kickstarter the Kickstarter allows us to fill in that whole fantasy world because all of that has to be created, and there's to your point a lead time to it. And so uh, what Susan and I are doing is that we are fleshing out this world of Empire Falls so that people can keep playing it. So it's not just you play it once and then you walk away. It's that every you know six months or eight months you come back and there's something new for you to play and a new piece of history for you to learn and a new weird war item that we're going to put in. Because, you know, we don't have GW pockets where we can just push out every three months, you know, a new crop <laughs> of models. You know, you know, we have to work within the constraints of, of, of what we sell, you know. Um, so for us doing, doing the triple nickel was a passion project because a lot of people don't think of black paratroopers and they were used to put out fires that were started by the Japanese that were sending incendiary devices along the, the jet stream and, and starting fires in California, Oregon, and Washington. Well, so I, I, I don't so, think, and the particular type of parachuting they were doing, I don't think people realize because they actually developed the technique for parachuting into trees. So they purposely targeted correct. Like, hey, I'm going to land in that spruce. Like, no one else trained to do that. <laughs> no, yeah. no, and not kill themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I was reading one of the, um, I was, the interview with the last guy that was alive just died this year and uh, from the Triple Nickels. And uh, he was talking about how one of the guys was stuck in a hundred foot, a hundred feet off the ground in a tree and he had to cut himself down. And in the drop, you know, he got killed. And that was, and that was one of the ways you died, you know, in those periods, it wasn't from parachuting. It was getting down out of the tree. And so they had to, so they, so they had to perfect, you know, those techniques for, for landing in, in heavy cover because that's what they were doing. And it was a very dangerous job, um, but it was on our home soil, you know? And, uh, and so when you think about, you know, what they were doing, uh, how well trained they were to do what they were doing, and the fact that they were cut off from any kind of support because they were airdropped in and they had to make their way back on foot, um, carrying all the equipment that they needed to do that. So um, so in our Weird War version of it, the Japanese are sending over fire demons, Onis. So now you can oh. use, um, you know, models like you would see in Rising Sun you know, Japanese fire demons and they would fight the fire demons. So the special rule for them is, you know, they get um, an extra defense dice uh, when they're fighting against fire. That's so, so I, that, I like that take on it. Like that gives you a chance to like put together a demon collection. They might have from exactly. some other game and like throw some uh, parachute infantry against it. I guarantee I, you no, no other weird war game based on World War II is going to have Japanese fire demons in it. We are going to be the only one. We are pioneering that style of gameplay right here. That That is a creative, creative approach. Uh, that is an interesting one. But, you know, speaking of the weird war line, um, as you push forward, is there any thought, um, 
about going into Korea and Vietnam. Um, yeah, we do have a full. We're sitting on a full line of Vietnam miniatures, but I wanted to make sure that we that the that the weird war elements around it were fully fleshed out. And right now, we're still supplementing Shattered Crown or World War One line, and we're trying to get launched our World War Two weird war line with with and you guys helped do it with empire falls i mean i think you guys will be really in, impressed with the rule book uh we sent out our pdfs i think last week or the week before for everybody that pledged until we can get the printed ones out and in the boxes and get those out to you guys which hopefully will be you know soon as soon as soon as we can we want to make sure that all the components are quality and that you're getting the product that you paid for i don't want to cut corners on any of this okay now something i should if anyone's listening to this and they're unaware of like the take on history that you made was that um, you did not go the uh, national socialist route on world war two. You did uh, a rebirth of the Holy Roman empire. Um, Correct. Which I thought was a interesting take because, you know, if you look at the twenties and the thirties, it was on a nice edge who would win the old aristocratic right wing or the Correct. Socialist right wing. Yeah, you just had it came down. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that when they think about history, they think that, oh, this was baked in. I'm like, no, it was it was a three way fight in Germany, um, you know, and and uh, and Hitler in 25, I think, got put in jail, you know, like he, he didn't win his first attempt to take over uh, the German government. Um, and it was and him being chancellor was a compromise between uh, two other parties to try to uh, push out the communists, the, the, the German communists at the time. Yeah, without uh, without Hindenburg backing him and like oh, he never the Stahlhems, yeah. I mean, it would have been uh, that's why when I read that, and it's like, okay, I could see a reinstatement of a monarchy, uh, yeah. Because think about it you had um, you had Wilhelm II, uh, who was weak, and so in our game, you have von Mackensen and Princess Louise Victoria partner with Wilhelm III, his son, to reestablish the Holy Roman Empire and then partner with Italy. And then, you know, the old Prussian Empire, which is part of Poland. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say, you know. So you have Italy, you have Austria, Hungary, Poland and Germany all come together to form the new the second Holy Roman Empire, the new Holy Roman Empire, you know. But the government is still a, the government is still a fascist government, you know. So you know, so you still have the same problems that you have. Only the the, the you know, what is it? The, your troubles are the same. It's just the people that are bringing bringing them to you are different. And you also had the secret societies, like the real society, right? That were you know they were heavy into mysticism and stuff. Those um, during during that time, but the monarchy is backed by the military. Right. And August uh, Van Mackensen, you know, who was a Prussian from the from the 1880s, 1870s, you know, he died in 1945. You know, he would be the figurehead for the military power of the Holy Roman Empire during that time, you know, uniting all the different uh, factions together under under a martial uh, government. That's 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 a monarchy. Yeah. Well, I, I think and it's interesting. Have the backing of, of, of the of the of the Pope also. Well, I, I think it's interesting because um, Otto von Leto Vorbeck was still alive at this time, but he sat uh -huh. out the war because he hated Hitler so much. But he was Correct. 
Yeah, he was World War One's most winning German general out there. And then yeah. under your scenario, you could actually bring out, you know, a guy with a beard and a long mustache and say, yeah. like, well, welcome back. Well, think about it. There was a lot of people that fought during World War One that sat out because of Hitler, because of their policies, because of, you know, they knew that, you know, uh, what a brutal regime it was with the brown shirts and the way they took over. You know, so a lot of those people would have had a mitigating effect on the, a lot of the atrocities that took place and you wouldn't have an SS, you know, um, you know, so a lot of that, a lot of that cult of personality around Hitler would dissipate, but you would still have people who would be loyal to the monarchy and, and, and pull in um, more savory characters, right? Yeah. And, oh. and, but but the war would last longer because you wouldn't have those generals making those mistakes, like not like Rommel not being able to to who was a World War One soldier not being able to push uh, his tanks up to the beaches during D Day uh, because he because Hitler had an order that they could they could only be released under his personal uh, uh, order, uh, his personal command, and he slept until six that day. You know, so, you know, so so a lot of mistakes that were made because commands were coming directly from Hitler wouldn't have been made. So the war would have been prolonged. A lot of the um, uh, like Hitler said he didn't like the the Sturmgewehr because it was uh, it was die cast. It was stamped metal, you know, and the and the soldiers loved it. And he was you know, he gave a lot of orders not to make a lot of weapons that would have turned the tide of war, would have gave them a fighting chance against the um against the Soviets uh, because of his aesthetic, you know, and then the whole vaccination with super heavy tanks, you know, came directly from Hitler, which is why you have the mouse. And then on the drawing boards, the rat, which was, I mean, how are we going to get that across a bridge? You know, how would you keep it from just sinking into the ground the minute you built it? Right. So, you know, so, so a lot of things like that. So for us, it gives us a much bigger playground to play in and, in our late war scenarios, you can get a lot of those big cats on the field to blast each other because everybody loves playing with, with big tanks. Well, what's that saying? There's been more models made of the tanks than were actually made in reality? It's like Correct, <laughs> except for the Sherman. The Sherman is the only tank that there hasn't been more models made. Yeah, <laughs> like um, like I know we sell the um, the Kugel Blitz, and I think they only made six of those, and, and I've sold over 20. So, <laughs> so, so, so that's very true, but, but it's a cool looking, you know, anti-aircraft gun on your, on your Panzer fours, you know, on your Panzer four or Panzer three chassis. So, you know, so the Germans had a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of uh, great ideas that were on paper. They look cool. And for us, it gives people a, a area to play in. And we even um, Susan is developing right now, a what if, tank line where like well what if this tank wasn't a design disaster and actually made it to the battlefield right so we stat it out and we allow you to play it in the game well you know so since we were talking about this and you like to focus on um some of the more niche armies out there have you mm -hmm. any have you had any thoughts on uh the, the various chinese armies at this time yeah chinese communists chinese warlords and chinese nationalists yeah the the gomi i mean i've seen a couple like I think Brigade Games has um, some Chinese lines, but just mm -hmm. the especially on the Warlord side, like um, you might see something that references like the Guangdong or the Chinese, but not like the sheer variety of like the Warlord. Oh yeah, man! 
Yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, they cobbled together. I mean, they had guys fighting in the warlord armies that had Adrian helmets from France, you know? Um, and later on, um, early war in China from 28 to, to 1940, um, mm. you had the Chinese nationalists, they were equipped by the Germans. So you had uh, two, two, two armored mm. cars, you had, uh, you know, the stall helmets, you had, uh, MG42s, all carried by the Chinese nationalists. And it wasn't until after 1940 that the British and the Americans started supplying them with equipment. So then they just looked like Americans, you know, with 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 Asian faces. Yeah. But uh, but but early on, but early on in the war, you know, you had, you know, the warlords were just whatever they could get, you know, Vickers, tanks, you know, whatever they could capture from the from the Japanese. You know, um, Adrian helmets from from the French, from the colonial era, um, you know, so they were outfitting themselves with whatever they had. So it's a really good opportunity to put together a ragtag, you know, group of, of soldiers and, and mix and match and really get out there and, and get some stuff going, you know, because uh, I, I think that's my fascination. I, w- I want to show up with something that people haven't mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, So that's I have uh, Warlord has like the Nisei and the 92nd um i bought those right away and it's like when you try to find some of these corner cases out there and that way you show up to the table and said oh yeah i i guess there might be a slight elitism to oh you didn't know about the 761st right <laughs> I, I, yeah but well, it's a chance to learn history in in, 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 in a non-preachy way right gaming yeah. is the only medium you can do that in you know where you can put something on the table and I love your models. And then you can give me the backstory of your models. Like, I mean, I know people that are, that are knee deep in, in GW lore, which isn't even real. Right. <laughs> you know, they can tell you every obscure battle that this unit fought in, you know, from all the books in the like Brock library, they read, you know, but they can't tell you, you know, uh, what unit, like, for like I said, my grandfather had never even talked about it until that one Thanksgiving. You know, and so I decided to, to dedicate the whole game to him because a lot of people who serve, they don't they don't talk about it unless you're with other soldiers, you know, unless you with other people that served. You know, uh, I want to ask you, because have you seen a turn in that? Because I I think I first learned about the 761st from like a Cosby show episode. I think like his father in law mm-hmm. um, was telling a story about it and they were all sitting around talking mm-hmm. about it. So that's the first time I even heard that. And, you know, that was a long time ago. But it's funny, I, I brought up uh, your company to my wife and mentioned that the Kickstarter and the 761st. And so she actually knew what it was. Um, I, oh, wow. Netflix, well, Netflix has a movie, um, Muddown, uh, Mudborn. Oh, I never oh. heard of it. No. Yeah. So I guess it's about um, veterans from like Louisiana who served in the 761st. This PTSD comes back home and has issues in. Uh, I think Louisiana, Missouri, one a southern state, and um, yeah. New Orleans, but, Louisiana, yeah, yeah. Imagine my, my, in, in in Louisiana. Well, <laughs> well, it, it's one of those states. Um, but it, it was yeah, exactly to, to think like, she has no interest in war gaming or military right. history, but you know Netflix made a movie where it was referenced, right? And she remembers it, yeah, and um. I think what Indiana Jones, the television series mentioned uh, the uh, Harlem Hellfighters in one of their episodes. So it's like, I mean, over time, there's more references to it, but there is not a huge uh, knowledge out there, but it's getting easier. And not enough for their contribution to the effort that they made. 
You know what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of these guys didn't even get their their medals, didn't get their 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 bronze, didn't get their their um uh, their purple hearts and, and their bronze stars and their silver stars and their medals of honor until the 1990s. You know, so so our country has a really bad habit of of trying to downplay the contribution of, of minorities. And it wasn't until um, wind talkers that we knew about the Navajo contribution to, to the war effort. The Native Americans uh, made an unbreakable code that the Japanese couldn't break, you know? So when you think about that, or, or the Thunderbirds, which are uh, Native American and Mexican American uh, troops all mixed in together to go fight, you know, out, 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 out of the West. So there's a lot of opportunities for us to tell these really remarkable and unique stories that are uniquely American that people out of Nottingham, England aren't even thinking about. Well, I, I think it's amazing. Like if you're hardcore into the history, mm -hmm. this thing's just known, like you know about it. So my, my dad was in the Marine Corps. So mm -hmm. even before that movie, everyone I was around knew about the Wind Talkers. Right. Um, but outside the common consciousness, which I think like miniature war gamers can fill, you know, it's seen as like, well, this is a corner case. This is a minor thing. Let's focus on, you know, we're nine on this other part that everyone's seen in the movies. And so you create like this cycle since that's all you've seen in like movies or like in popular media, that's all you have a reference yeah. for. You, a lot of people out there aren't going to crack a book. And like, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if it's not in your textbook when you went through high school, um, you're just not even going to give it a second thought again, right? And you think a lot of that is how we consume our media, right? Yeah, through, through the visual medium. Yeah, it's how we consume it. Yeah. Well, I mean, because if you watch TV, you know, I mean, you don't go to a lot of lectures. You know, you're not you're not going to the to the tank museum to hear the lecture on the 19 different versions of the Sherman, you know, or you don't live in a town that has a, a, a history museum like that. Yeah, I mean, I live I live like three hours from the Windtalker Museum. So I live near the uh, Navajo Reservation. So they have right. a giant museum out there. But it's like it's literally in the middle of nowhere. There's not even an interstate nearby. It's like a state highway. So it's like, how would you even be exposed to that unless you took it down to like the Smithsonian? Yeah, good question. Good question. And how do you get it across 50 states? Yes. That, that's why I thought it was very interesting because I, I was flipping through the PDF you sent on um, mm -hmm. uh, Empire Falls. And at the yeah. back, you have some... Uh, highlights some personality highlights which is something like i've seen warlord games do that where they highlight certain individuals but you made sure, sure it was all like um uh tribal nations uh yeah people of color yeah uh women, women. there yeah so but as, so i really want to ask you like since you're doing this big focus on niche um armies out there that's going to take a lot of skews as a manufacturer um, and the, just the inventory challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've worked in a warehouse. The more SKUs you have, the more little subsections you've got to put out on the shelves. So sure. it creates not just a manufacturing issue, but also an inventory management issue. How, how do you tackle that? Well, we do it in sets, right? So the battle suits will come in sets of, of five to 10. Um, you know, the, the hero sets will come in groups of five, you know, five, five, five 
Axis Five Allies, that kind of thing, you know. And then, you know, um, I mean, if Reaper can do, you know, a thousand <laughs> different, <laughs> you know, hang tags, you know, I think that we should be able to, to handle, you know, you know, 50, you know, people that we choose to, to highlight. And again, it's, it's all based on the interests of the customers and, and who Susan decides to, to you know, to, yeah, who she decides to feature because she writes all that stuff up. So, well, then since Susan has a background in fashion, do, do you find, because I think most miniature, especially historicals, do like a trailing of where this has always been popular. At some point, someone's got to, you know, roll the dice and saying, you know what, no one's ever made this. I don't know how much people are going to like this. I, I don't have any, you know, data for my sales to say, hey, this type of five person unit would sell great. Um, how do you decide what to gamble on? Um, I just, I research a lot and I just take a chance on it because I believe in our product and I believe what we're doing and I believe people will like it. Yeah. And that, and that's proven out when we go out to conventions and we set up the tables and people start playing. I mean, if you look at the, the number, like the number of women that come to our tables are disproportionate to every other table. Even, even when we go to a Warhammer convention, people whose girlfriends or wives are there will huddle around our table because Susan becomes that, that magnet, right? They say, oh, well, here's another woman playing this game. So, you know, they feel safer at our table. I've, I've seen that. So I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Well, and then, let me, and then let me when they get into the game and then when they get into the game of it, it doesn't matter because now they're playing because we've had, remember those two teenage girls that came over and kicked that guy's butt. Yeah. They kicked this guy's butt so bad that he got up from the table and left <laughs> on turn five because they were just, they, they, they just curb stomped him with an Italian army and he had British and his partner had Americans. And they were just, you know, they had their strategy down and they were taking no prisoners. Yeah, and he just, he, <laughs> he just rage quit because here he was, you know, a virile young man being getting his butt handed to him by two teenage girls, you know. It's an Italian that, army. If, if it had been a German Italian, army, if it had been a German army, then he'd have an excuse. But it would have been justified. Yeah. It would have been justified. But it was an Italian army. So I think to us, that showed that women are just as competitive and can get just into the game as much as anybody else, but they have to have an on-ramp. Well, you know, let, they have to have an on-ramp. Well, let, let me ask you. Um, I think I've heard you being interviewed on other podcasts. And but not as good as this one. <laughs> well, you know, I won't go that far. I am what I am. I accept that. I, I don't need this to make a living. I do this for fun. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's, it's a hobby to me. But I, how important are conventions to you and to your business? Critical, critical. This, this past two years has been just hard hit because that's where we get the most attention. We draw customers, get new customers, it's word of mouth. And that's the key to our business. And that's the key to our business. So if... So after you hit like a convention site, you can probably get some non-traditional uh, interest, you know, to come to your table. Um, so are you able to convert them into long-term customers? Yes. Oh yeah, we got, I, it was really shocking to me the first time people were fanatical about getting our miniatures. 
you know, because we were carrying some Warlord product. And like, no, 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 we don't want that. We want yours. You know, I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, but the, and and the fins are just a prime example of that people love our fins, you know, and they've tried other armies, you know, they've tried other armies because of the fact that our fins are, are, are so well done, are so well detailed. And we were lucky enough that, um, and we have a really big British and Australian, not British, but a French and Australian following for some reason i don't know why that is because i've never been to australia but <laughs> but but for some reason we get a lot of orders of people in australia that order our stuff and uh and the french just love us we have a full line of french miniatures uh, we don't have a lot of french vehicles but we do have a lot of french infantry like i said and people i mean i think they like the sculpts i mean we spent a lot of time making sure that the sculpts were you know were unique they had character they had flavor to them and we're doing the same thing with, with, with the new line for Empire Falls. You know, even though a lot of it is going to be focused on Weird War to supplement the, the World War II armies that we already have. I mean, but we try to put as much love and care and detail into it, into it as possible. I mean, Sue looks over, you know, all, all the artwork to make sure that it's, you know, that, that it suits the standards that we have. Because like I said, she comes from the fashion industry where that, that's important. And she has a really good eye for it. Well, who, who does the, the sculpting? Because you, do you do all the... Um concept sculpting uh yeah. casting molding all that's done in-house all that's all that's done in-house uh, our original sculptor uh they did our original world war ii line he passed away in 2014 uh um so uh we've had to convert over to to 3d modeling we were using um uh uh james van schreck for a while until he got gobbled up by uh hero clicks <laughs> and um uh, and so uh, we were doing traditional uh, green stuff sculpting, you know, with, with a physical sculptor. And now it's just more cost effective for us to do uh, 3D sculpting. Oh, so you've, made this, so you've made the shift. Yeah, we okay. made a complete shift. Yeah, our original line of 2000 miniatures were all hand sculpted by a single sculptor. Um, and then when he passed away, you know, it was hard to find somebody who, was, who could do that and do it in the quantity that we needed it in. But Lee conceptualizes each character and, and draws it out for the um, sculptor and then uh, works with the sculptor till he gets it to where he wants it to be. Okay. So do you use like a ZBrush or? Yeah, well, it starts with pen and paper. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it starts with just a, a thumbnail sketch of, of this is what I'm thinking about. And I create an ideation board and then I send that to the to the 3D artist. And if they need more detail uh, for it, then I, you know, will go in, you know, with ZBrush and add color and flavor and, you know, that kind of thing until we get exactly, you know, what we needed to be. Um, and then they do the 3D rendering from that. But you have to give them a lot of information for them to do the 3D sculpting. I've realized that. Um, a lot, a lot more information than you would give a traditional sculptor who kind of understands, you know, okay. uh, you know, what, 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 what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a human figure and poses and stuff like that. You say, Oh, I want an action pose. And they'll know, you know, what you're looking for. But with 3d people, you have so many different permutations. There's so many possibilities that you really have to scale it, you know, nail it down like this. I want this exactly this way, you know? They, they don't they don't like a lot of wiggle room let's put it that way <laughs> well i'll i'll be picking up those he has, he has he has three pouches on his utility belt not four three <laughs> <laughs> well 
Well, I'm my my wife's having me go around and um, collect a lot of the metal models. So I think like Spectre Miniatures has sh- shifted over to um, 3D design and metal mm-hmm. casting. And I didn't realize you guys have. So I'll have to buy, pick up some of those because since she does 3D modeling, she wants to see like, well, how do you do that? What does it look like at the end? So I'll have to, I'll have to grab some of those. Yeah. I- so, yeah. So we, we try to do like short runs. We try to do resin casting. And then if we're going to do long runs, you know, anything over, you know, uh, five or 600, then it's metal casting. Is that because of what it does to the material, does to the mold? Yeah, yeah, the mold wears out a lot quicker in resin. And oh, then okay. with, with metal, you can you can get a couple hundred thousand miniatures out of a metal mold before you have to replace it. And oh. then if you get injection molded plastic, you're talking about millions of figures at that point. Well, let me let me ask you. So one of the latest things that I think is uh, I've seen on Facebook and on YouTube is the uh, Siocast system. Yeah. How would that play to you as a manufacturer, their whole turnkey solution? Well, if you look across the manufacturing spectrum, um, it, it's a cost it's a cost benefit analysis that you have to do. You know, in the investment in Sinocast, am I producing enough miniatures to make that investment worthwhile? Right? Because there's not only the investment in the machine, but there's an investment in every mold that you make, right? And are you gonna sell enough to pay for that mold and, and to recoup the cost of the machine, right? So um, so right now I think you have a race in the manufacturing industry between how good resin 3D printers are getting and the cost effectiveness, how cost effective they are versus can you implement and scale up the way um, Corpus Belly has done with their thousands of, of metal cast miniatures that they can now convert into plastic, right? So Sinocast may be a good fit for them because they have to convert thousands of miniatures over and they know their games are selling, you know, in, in, in the thousands so they can recoup that investment back right away versus smaller U.S. manufacturers that may not be selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of miniatures at a, at a time, right? Um, so I think that if you're doing small runs, 3D printing might be more cost effective because if you invest in a $600 machine, you can make that back a lot quicker than if you invest in a $50,000 machine. Well, does uh, Gaddis Gaming have 3D printers? Do you guys exper- experiment? Yeah, like- all of, yeah, so all of our prototyping is done on 3D printers. And not your we- final products, though. No, not the final products, no. Okay, because I... Do, and then we do either resin casting or we do uh, metal casting. But the cost of metal has gone up 30%. And we've eaten that cost. That's just coming out of our profits. We haven't passed that on to our customers. Our prices have stayed the same since 2017. You know, we only had to do one uh, price increase, and that was to uh, cover the cost of of a new facility we moved into. And that was just, you know, and but we haven't changed our prices in what, six years? Yeah. Yeah. Even though the cost of metal, you know, goes up, has gone up. And you know, it's getting rare to even be able to find tin because of what's happening in the metal market. I don't know if people, I mean, people wouldn't follow that. It's inside baseball, but, you know, there's a lot of volatility right now in the metals market. Well, I'd, not raising your prices in six years. If we were on Shark Tank, you know, mm-hmm. you'd be getting a lecture right now about sure, just yeah. even the way inflation would eat at you. Yeah, but, you know, we have to consider you know, the sensitivity of the, of our customer market, we're trying to create a customer market 
uh, bringing new people in, you know, and, um, you know, and, 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 and it's a niche market. If I was, you know, if I was again, you know, versus looking at what people are doing with Games Workshop, I mean, it cost them three cents to make a Space Marine and they sell it for thirty five dollars. I mean, that's a five thousand percent markup, you know, but we don't have that type of following. You know, uh, we have, you know, our, we have a middle class consumer base. You know, we have a niche market of, of women and people of color and, and, and people that are into historical gaming of all ages, you know, whether it be retirees or whatever. So we try to we try to be cost efficient wherever we can. But raising our prices, uh, you know, we, we'd rather get more product out into the market than to raise our prices. And I think what supplements us is, is doing Kickstarters and targeting um, those those pain points. So it's not that, you know, yeah. So if we only did sales online or to our game stores. Yes. Then we would have to raise our prices three percent every year. Right. To keep up with inflation. But we cost but because the upfront we eat the upfront costs and then we recoup it through Kickstarter by saying, this is a product that we think you would like. Do you like it? Right. You say, yes, we like it. You buy it. We then manufacture it. And then we expand on it. Here's another product that we think you'd like, you know, do you like it? People fund it. Then we make it. If it doesn't get funded, then we don't make it. Well, I think that's what I liked when I saw empire falls is like, okay, well, these are world war two minis that, I don't see anyone else making. I'll take Correct. those. And it actually, from the way you presented it, it actually looked like, I, I won't use my sailor language here, but uh, like you had your <laughs> stuff together. Because I've seen some of like, where I see a, you know, a sketch or just like a 3D model. And it's like, hey, do you want to go all the tiers? And like someday we'll make this into a model. Like, no, I want to see, you know, the bird in the hand before yeah, yeah. really kick in and that yours was like well this, this looks like they've got 90 percent of this done yeah exactly yeah. yeah you are you are 100 percent correct we went and we filmed yeah yeah so so we killed so we filmed at our facility and you can see that we were in production already so you know so to your point it was just getting all the weird war stuff done and, and getting it sculpted and getting it cast you know, and that was, you know, that was the the lion's share of what the money went to because all the other, the World War II miniatures we already had. It was just weird warding it out, which was the upfront cost, <laughs> you know. And, I, uh, and, be, and being able to bring new tanks online, being able to bring like the M6 and the P40, you know, all of those type of things, which nobody else is even touching. Well, that I think that's when I was looking at when I look at Kickstarters. One of the things I look at is where where is their manufacturing located, because there's been plenty of horror stories about you know getting oh, in, China. getting oh yeah, and I think yeah. it's only one plant in Shenzhen, and it's like you have to get on their schedule, like they handle yeah. all all that, and it's like you know what I know Gaddis he makes it like right there. I've seen the video. Right. He's standing next to the spin caster, so I know. Hill, yeah, Hill evergreen. I'll, I'll say one thing: evergreen shipping. <laughs> <laughs> if your if your product was on that boat, <laughs> woo! Yeah, and everybody was telling, "Oh, go to China, get it made in China. It's so much cheaper in China." But I, you know, but I could see you. You know, China can hold your product hostage because there was a, a um a company that had Taiwan put in their rule book, and China had a hundred thousand. Uh, 10,000 rule books held up because of that one word, Taiwan. They wouldn't ship them their books. 
Yeah. Well, you know, crazy stuff like that. And I'm like, you know what? I, we're an American company. We want to employ American people and we're made here in America. I mean, that that's our thing. That's our thing. You know, um, you know, everybody else farms their stuff out all over, you know, wherever, you know, search it to your point, shark tanking it. But for us, you know, the, the, there's a there's a, a level of pride of, of, of being an American company and making things here in America. We're about to compromise on yeah, and that's something that we refuse to compromise on, even though everybody was telling us in the business world, oh, yeah, make it in China. You can make it for pennies. I'm like, yeah. So if you make that one factory in Shenzhen, you have to stand behind GW and Mantic and, you know, Warlord and everybody else. Well, I mean, I, I understand the value of controlling your entire supply chain. Like, Yes. You're, you're horizontally integrated. Uh, but have have you ever thought about becoming that that factory like doing the third party because i think there's some companies that that do that um but i don't know if there's a u.s company that is that um no, make our own yeah. Line. yeah so the thing is about america is that we're freshly independent <laughs> and trying to get together and work with other people is really tough you know um we have we have partnered with other companies before and it's been really positive but then you know i don't know what other companies financial situations are you know, some people, you know, get out there and they get overextended and then they and then they collapse, you know, whereas we've been able to withstand that test of time by slowly increasing, you know, small increments, you know, growing bigger slowly versus going you know, big all at once. And, and again, it would take a sizable capital infusion to be able to do that. I mean, we have I mean, we have a plan for it. I mean, we laid out a plan a long time ago uh, for growth. But, you know, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to do that, if not, if not millions. And, yeah, do we have a facility where we could, you know, be the one-stop shop for everybody coming in wanting plastic miniatures in the United States? Yeah, if I had a million, two, you know, a million and a half bucks. <laughs> okay. You know, uh, yeah, I, I could totally do it. I could totally do it. I, I could scale, but it's a, it becomes a matter of scale. You know, we could become the board game miniature manufacturer the way that China is, you know, but we'd have to pay American wages. We'd have to abide by OSHA laws. We'd have to abide by environmental laws, things that China doesn't have to do. Well, you know, you know, I, I get into this discussion at work. Um, so I, I've dealt a lot with integrated circuits and uh -huh. um, I, always, I always hear that complaint about like, why are they always made in Taiwan, Indonesia, or China? And it's like, have you ever seen their rivers? Right. They'll dump into the river. Yeah, that, that lead is going straight into your drinking supply. We don't have that right. problem here. Right. Yeah, those, 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 those solvent chemicals, yeah, that's going right into the ground, wherever that factory is. They hose it off right there. Yeah, so they don't have, so they don't have the same environment and environmental quality standards that we have here in America. And, uh, and, and I don't want to support a polluting industry like that, you know, because I want my, my, my grandkids to have a, a, a decent world to live in. You know, and maybe that's kind of pie in the sky for me. But, you know, I think that we sell our stuff at a reasonable price. You know, it's all American made. Could we sell it for cheaper if we made it overseas? Yes. But all the things that we just addressed, we'd have to deal with. And we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to deal with supply issues, you know, um, and, uh, and, and deal with all of the, you know, having our products held hostage. If I want to talk about, you know, uh, Hong Kong or Taiwan or any, you know, or Tibet, if we want to stage one of our games in Tibet, 
you know, if our books were being, if our game was being manufactured overseas, we might not be able to do that if it's being made in China. You know, I, I just don't, I just don't, or, or I've heard stories about people's having their games held hostage. You know, the warehouse quotes you one price, and then when you go to pick it up, oh no, it, it's doubled. You know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and with a small company, you don't, you, can you afford to go over and get a Chinese lawyer to argue that? you know in court <laughs> well there, there there's your sinocast machine right there <laughs> oh <know>? yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so you know what i love to get a place with five or six sinocast machines just putting out plastic miniatures day in and day out oh sure i would sure i would i would love to be able to do that someday you know yeah someday but you know <laughs> we, we're working towards it we're working towards it and, and with the support of, of our customers with the support of our gaddis gamers out there and with and and with the support of a positive gaming community i think i think it can be accomplished i think there's a there's a market out there for people who just want to roll some dice tell a story and have a good time and you and you alluded to this earlier about if you hide it in a history book people aren't going to get it it's that's not the way the younger generation consumes information so you have to put it the information in a way that people can get it right and the way people can get it without being preachy is you put it in a game and then people can explore it and they understand it and even if you look at our rule book it says this is the part that we've made up but here's the real story yeah, it's even more you had a different color you had a different color on the text i recognize yeah it. yeah yeah because we want people to know that yeah what we we've just extrapolated into a weird war scenario based on the world of guards that we have created starting in 1899 and going on into the future, you know, this is that world. This is that timeline. These are the things that are happening in that timeline. Right. But here's the real story that happened in our world. And I want you to then take that nugget of information that I've given you and then explore it. Well, I know I'm taking up a lot of time, but I think, one thing I want to ask you about and point out to any listeners here is I'm, I'm on the gaddisgaming.com. So G-A-D-D-I-S gaming.com. And I'm looking at some of your miniatures here. And I've already commented that your fins are well-renowned throughout the World War II gaming, gaming community. community. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for supporting our fins. And I'd like to thank all of our, our Finnish customers. Uh, we love you all. <laughs> Goal. Goal to all of you. <laughs> but I, I was actually looking at your Gaddis Gaming Battle Box, uh, okay. which I think is fascinating because I know Warlord Games was doing like this mystery box. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at some of the comments back about of where it was basically just a run through the warehouse. What's not selling poured in the box here. And I right. think eventually they've gone to themed, but your battle boxes are actually themed and you can theme them yes. two ways, World War One or World War Two. Allies, access, or mystery. Um, right. How, how about for the listeners, you explain how you put together these boxes? Because this actually seems less the um, what's not selling in your warehouse, but actually, you know, adding a, a curated um, collection. And it also looks like it's a subscription model too. Yeah. So, so it's a subscription box. And every month you get a curated box, right? Inside that box is curated miniatures, themes, specifically to the army that you want with all the different contents that we have. And some of it is stuff that we have that we haven't released that you'll be getting early. So some of the people that in the battle box, they'll be getting uh, some of our, 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 um, our, our battle suits early. They'll be getting some of our prototype pieces early, you know, um, that they can add in, into their armies. 
um, before they're released to, to anybody else. So our subscribers will be getting that. But, you know, you're getting about yeah, 60 or $70 worth of uh, product uh, for, for, for $30. Well, and what, what I love about it is normally when you do like the Warlord games and like get the starter or anything, they don't mm-hmm. come with a tank. I mean, maybe the Japanese will get like a Hago uh, tank right. in it. You actually throw in here, I think the example you have oh, yeah. is an M4A1. So you actually throw a Sherman yeah. tank in the box. So it's like, I can get this themed allies and now I'm ready to go. I don't have to like get the starter army and, oh yeah, buy a tank again. It's already in the right. scene. Right. And then every, then you, then the next month you'll get a half track and then the next month you'll get some Jeeps and the next month you'll get some terrain. And then, you know what I'm saying? It, it, oh yeah, it, terrain it, too. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's a logical way for people to collect and build their armies up on a budget, right? So you don't have to go down and drop $200 at once. You know, every, you know, every month, here you go. You know, here's, here's some dice. Here's some bases. Here's some miniatures. Here's some infantry. Here's some support weapons. You know, all of that is mixed in. And then, and then the mystery box. So there's, there's, a, a, there's a skirmish box and then there's a war gamers box. The war gamers box includes World War One. Uh, items so every so stuff from our world war one line you know people want to dabble in both of those but what i think is insane about it is you're charging 39.95 for one of these boxes that Mm -hmm. that's basically a i don't think you can get a box of primary space marines for that no the primary space (laughs) marines are 54 dollars yeah that's what it's like you know you got a you got an army for what it would cost to like almost get a squad yeah to, to buy, to buy a four-man squad you can get a whole army yeah yeah, yeah. And, and again if people you know and 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 it's it's an economical way for people every month to be able to get something that they normally would be or people that are indecisive like what are like i have a, a customer that uh, that got a hold of me yesterday he was like i don't know i really want british what should i go with and because he's overwhelmed by the choice I can say, well, what, where do you want to play? You want to play in Europe? You want to play in North Africa? You want to play in the Pacific, right? I can curate that box that I send him based upon where he wants to play his game, where he wants to theme his army at. And nobody else can do that. I mean, we're a yeah. small enough company, you know, where, where we can, where we give you that personalized service, right? It, 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 it's a concierge service that you don't get from any other company. No, that that's outstanding. But, you know, as we wrap it up here, is there any last thoughts or last words you want to get out before we close out the show? No, I wanted to thank everybody for their support of Gaddis Gaming. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us here. And yeah, thank you for good words. Yeah, thank you for having us on the podcast. And please check out uh, the miniatures line, and don't be afraid to send us an email and let us know what type of army you want. And uh, and and we hope that we will be your uh, your local uh, war game company of choice. Well, I, I definitely want to have you back on after I get my Empire Falls box and I tear through it. I'll call you up. and <laughs> so. <laughs> well, th- thanks for uh, being on the show with me. And, uh, thank sure, you- you're welcome. Thank you for joining us at Miniature Wargaming Labs. Bye.